This is an ABC podcast. God love us. He went up to New Guinea and, of course, we never saw her again. And we never ever heard through the whole war. And the most heartbreaking thing was when peace was declared, we waited and waited. Welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. This month marks the anniversary of the D-Day invasion, one of the key battles for the Allied forces during the Second World War. But there's a sad history of forgetting when it comes to certain events during World War II, including several that took place right on Australia's doorstep, like the story you're about to hear. At the end of 1941, after Japan attacked Pearl Harbour, the Australian government told more than 1,500 soldiers and civilians to make a stand at Rabaul, the main town of the then Australian territory of New Guinea. Today, almost 80 years on, hundreds of Australian families are still in the dark about exactly what happened to their relatives left behind in Rabaul. Ian Townsend investigates the war we forgot. It's interesting the silence amongst the families because we had cousins who never knew each other existed because of the silence. Quite incredible. I think it was such a horrible thing happened. They just couldn't bear to think about it or talk about it much. That's Diana Martell and her niece, Andrea Williams. Diana now lives in Brisbane with her husband, Henry, but back in 1941, she was a young girl living in a town called Rabaul, then one of the most beautiful towns in the South Pacific. I was born in 1930 in Rabaul, Malaguna Road, at home, just about opposite the, uh, what became the Church of England, which is now a wreck completely, of course. We had a very comfortable life there until the war when the women and children were evacuated in 1941 and when I had just turned 11. It was before Christmas that we left and we had Christmas on the boat. Mm. This is the story of an Australian military and civilian catastrophe. In January 1942, A month before the bombing of Darwin, Japan invaded Diana's home on what was then the Australian Territory of New Guinea. Most of the nearly 2,000 Australian soldiers and civilians left behind in Rabaul after the evacuation were dead within six months. Since writing a book about one of the civilian families left behind, I've been wondering why Rabaul isn't part of Australia's national story. Anniversary Day, 1942, is a solemn day for Australia. For the first time in her history, an attack has been launched against her territory. For the first time, her soil has been violated and the militia have probably seen battle. If the attempt is successful, it is certain that the mainland of Australia will be attacked. Perhaps not now, 
but certainly later. We the Japanese invaded on the 23rd of January 1942, and the next day, Australia's acting Prime Minister and Minister for the Army, Frank Ford, made an emergency national radio broadcast. The battle for Australia has commenced, and we, who realise the danger, should know the way. Sea lanes must be kept open. Raw materials must be brought to the factories. The battle of the Pacific is the battle for Australia. Australia had been ruling New Guinea from Rabaul for two decades. We'd taken it from the Germans in World War I, and the League of Nations had given us a mandate to administer New Guinea as an Australian territory. By 1941, Rabaul looked a lot like a Queensland town. Its residents were even listed in the Queensland Post Office directory. Its high-set wooden homes had wide verandas, red roofs and gardens of frangipani and bougainvillea. Australian businessmen, public servants and planters walked the wide, shady streets in white suits and stopped at the pubs to drink Australian beer. It had a racetrack and picture theatres, a swimming pool and an Australian school. But then war came to the South Pacific and blew all of that away. Hello. Hi, Nana. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good to see you again. Yes. I'm in Brisbane, speaking with Diana Martell, one of the wartime evacuees from Rabaul. Diana was born Diana Coote and grew up just outside Rabaul at a beautiful place called Tavui, a paradise for kids. I never wore shoes. The rocks all around were volcanic sort of rocks with spikes. They were very spiky and, and sharp on your feet, but I could walk on them, no trouble. And the little kids who came out to visit would be going, ee! as they tiptoed along. The first part of the reef was just, you probably know how it looks, all covered in algae, and so they dynamited a little bit of it and made a, it was sand underneath that old old reef rock thing, and, they, and then they piled the rocks from the dynamite around the edge, and they had that sandy part in the middle where I had, I could swim, you see. And the rocks were all built up around and soon became lived in by little tiny coloured fish, all sorts of beautiful fish. So if I wanted to, I could spend time looking at those. That's the time I remember my father best, really, because after each storm, the rocks were knocked over. And um, then when he came home from work, he used to go down and heave the rocks up again so that uh, I'd be safe. And that's when I used to see all these little fish popping out of the, the place. Yes, it was very pretty. It is our privilege tonight to introduce the Prime Minister, the Honourable John Curtin. And then when the war came, um, I remember Pearl Harbour, December the 7th. Men and women of Australia, we are at war with Japan. That has happened because in the first instance, Japanese naval and air forces launched an unprovoked attack on British and United States territory. 
Because our vital interests are in peril. And because the rights of free people in the whole Pacific are assailed. They came out and they said to us, just for safety's sake, you'd better clear out tonight from here. We're expecting bombs sometime or other. Ours was the first that would be seen as they approached. So we got, I remember running around and getting mosquito nets and a couple of sheets or things that we thought were important. The dogs were my main worry. And we got in the car when it got dark and we went into the bush and stayed the night there. And that day after we'd spent the night in the car in the bush, it was real rainforest too. And my father went down to the beach in front of the house and, and looked out at sea. I went with them and it was just dawn, just grey light. And I remember thinking, oh, this is very strange. And they were talking and you could sort of feel that something terrible was happening, looking for the planes, but nothing came. And then not long after that, when I'd been playing on the reef, in the afternoon, it was a beautiful day and lovely, and I, it was very low tide, that's right, so I was down playing on the reef when um, the, uh, oh, I dropped something in the water. That's right, and a, a knife of all things. I was being uh, acting out the part of being someone or other with a knife. Anyway, it was an old, I knew it would rust, so I rushed up to the house with this knife to wash it in fresh water, and there was a, this car, painted khaki, at the front door. And this young fellow in the officer's cap came out and mum came out after him and um, waved him off, bye-bye. And then she looked around at me and said, oh, we've got to leave tomorrow, tomorrow. And she said, we can only take one suitcase with some clothes. It was all done before dinner. Next morning we drove to the wharf in town and got on the ship. Anyway, that was that. The ship was to take the women and children down to the Australian mainland. Rabaul was defended by a small garrison that included the 2nd 22nd Army Battalion, an RAAF squadron and a local militia. The Territory's civilian men weren't given the option of leaving. That included Diana's father, Philip Coote. My father finished work before he came out to say just before we all left. All the men came down to wave goodbye to wife and kids. I wouldn't even kiss my father goodbye because I was too busy rushing. I'll see you again whenever spring breaks through again. These were Australian lives. They were at home. This was their home. It's all you've got. Yes. And on top of that, I've only found out recently, <laughs> the men did not know the men in Rabaul did not know where the ships were heading to in Australia. No. They had no idea, so they'd just wave goodbye to their wives and children. Goodness knows when we'll see you, and I've got no idea where you're going to. Oh, I, know. I didn't hear that. Mm. It's in Philip's letters. I found it recently. Still missing you, darling. Wondering how you're getting on and what you're doing. This is going to be your longest absence that ever was. However, I'll come to town tomorrow morning, Sunday, in the hope of hearing from you. Cheerio, lovely one. Keep cheerful. All my love is yours, and I'm always looking forward to being together again. Pete.
Why should I feel so sad? Treasuring the memory of these days All the way Taking a local bus today from the airport at Kokopo to Rabaul, the road hugs the sea and the jungle drips onto it. On the left, World War II tunnels are cut into the hill. On the right, a rusting Japanese crane is in the process of a slow-motion collapse into the sunken volcanic caldera that forms Rabaul's harbour. As the palm trees flash past, the harbour's surface mirrors the distant volcanoes that surround Rabaul. It's beautiful and it's also one of the most seismically active and heavily bombed places on the planet. Old Rabaul has been pretty much destroyed by war and volcanic eruptions. Rabaul today has moved a bit further west of the old business centre, most of which now lies beneath volcanic ash and is covered in vines and trees and grass. A short bus ride out of Rabaul is Tavui, where Diana, as a little girl, sat in that swimming pool built by her father just before the war and watched those tiny coloured fish. The swimming pool's no longer there. It took a direct hit during an air raid just before the invasion in 1942. Today, there's not much left at all of Diana's home at Tavui. Our house was the first bombed, completely gone. When my father was out there for lunch, we had had a trench dug before we left. He must have got in the trench because he survived that house being blown up. After the bombing and the invasion, all contact with Rabaul was lost. Not knowing what happened to their husbands and fathers and brothers, the hundreds of women and children who'd left Rabaul with one suitcase each were struggling to make ends meet. Diana's niece, Andrea Williams, is a member of the Papua New Guinea Association of Australia, which has collected their stories for a book published this year called When the War Came. When the women and children come down, they were told not to discuss where they'd come from because it would cause angst within Australia. The families didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have homes in Australia. They'd left their men behind, their main source of income behind. Their friends were scattered now throughout Australia and um, they really didn't have the network that they were used to. So it was very traumatic, I think, for many of them in very many ways. Yes. Mm. They couldn't use their husband's bank money if it was in only his account, for instance, his name. Mm. The account was in his name. They... The wives couldn't use that because it wasn't positive that he was dead. It wasn't just civilians who struggled. The relatives of the soldiers who'd been stationed at Rabaul weren't told much either and waited years for answers. One of the problems was that all communication with the town had been cut just before the invasion. Australian troops were fighting the Japanese for the first time on Australian territory and there was nobody to report it. Outnumbered five to one by better equipped troops, the Australians were overwhelmed and retreated. Some died in combat, but many more died of disease and starvation in the jungle or were captured and executed. 160 were massacred at a plantation called Toll. More than a thousand of the soldiers and civilians who'd surrendered drowned, 
when a prison ship, the Montevideo Maru, was torpedoed a few months later by an American submarine. At the time, families didn't know. They heard only rumours. You'll find many families in Australia now who had soldiers that were up in New Guinea at the time. They were only young men who were 18, 19, 20. So you had mothers and fathers who lost their sons. Those sons didn't have families who could carry that history down the generations. And what happened was so horrific that their mothers and fathers didn't want to talk about it, their siblings didn't want to talk about it. There was absolute silence and they didn't know what happened to their men. And there certainly were rumours. And I think that at the end of the war, when other Australians were celebrating, the families from New Guinea were still wondering what was happening and where were their men. And they, they'd heard certain rumours from the men who had escaped, who had gone through the toll, you know, experienced the toll massacre. They'd come back with stories of what the Japanese were doing to Australians up there and it created fear amongst those families. And uh, I think children grew up not knowing their fathers and that, I think, had a very long-term impact on them. And not being able to explain it or not having the Australian public understanding mm. what had happened must mm. have left them feeling very isolated. Very isolated and um, not being able to talk about it because generally people, if they don't have first-hand information about something, they'll listen to you for two minutes and that'll be it. So they experience this not being able to talk about it, feeling very different and uh, just people not really interested in what happened to their lives. Because really. they didn't understand. Because they didn't understand. Because of the, one, the silence when the evacuees came down, two, the government silence afterwards and um, the fact that, you know, there were calls for an inquiry and that inquiry didn't ever eventuate. Uh, so there was general silence from all over from the government in Australia, from both sides of government, there were no answers. Who's that? That's Dickie. That's Dickie. Okay. Dickie, yeah. So this is the backyard, you know? Yeah. So who's this? That's Jim. That's Jim? Oh, we always called him Jimmy, Jimmy. What about Richard? Was it always Dickie or...? The last time I saw Dickie would have only been, I don't know, seven or eight, I suppose. Graham Manson isn't sure what happened to his brother Jimmy and his sister Marjorie, and Marjorie's little boy Dickie. All that's left are a few family photos, and Graham finds it difficult to talk about them even 75 years later. In 1942, Dickie was 11, about the same age as Diana was, and he lived on the same coast, but west of Tavui, on a plantation. Dickie's mother decided to stay on the plantation with the men, rather than be evacuated. After the invasion, the family vanished, and for many years, no one knew what happened to them. Go for a walk. Yeah. Walk about. Back in Rabaul, I'm meeting Albert Coney, who's going to show me the site of an old pre-war rubbish dump called the Malay Hole, near the base of an active volcano. Out here, beneath the plain of grey volcanic rocks, is the unmarked grave of Marjorie and Dickie and their family. On the 18th of May 1942, 
After a three-day trial for espionage, the Japanese Navy drove them out here. Dickie Manson, only 11 years old, had been found guilty of spying along with the rest of the family and was shot, holding the hands of his mother Marjorie and stepfather. This later became a mass grave for about a hundred others who were captured and killed. Only 54 bodies were recovered, but not Marjorie and Dickie's family. There's nothing to mark the site but the black cone of the still steaming volcano. Dickie's uncle, Graham Manson, is the only person to remember them as they were. All that's left are Graham's memories and a few photographs. Here's a picture of Dickie. He's 11 years old. He, he was mm. So there's Dickie there, is it? Yeah. Playing cricket? There, there, and there. Like many families of those left behind at Rabaul, Graham was never told officially what happened. He's had to rely on rumours. God love us, he... He went up to New Guinea and, of course, we never saw her again. And we never ever heard through the whole war. And the most heartbreaking thing was when peace was declared, we waited and waited. The word we got in the end was they'd all been, you know, assassinated. Almost all the surviving families from Rabaul were traumatised in some way and find it really hard to talk about it even today. Diana and her mother weren't told officially about the death of her father Philip until well after the war ended. We heard that Dad was dead, which was when I was in the middle of doing the intermediate, I think, in, in Sydney. I came home from early because I'd been doing exams and Hannah came to the door with red eyes and she said don't talk to mum, mum is too upset and when mum finally appeared I don't think anything was ever said much from that time on about it. Your mother never dwelt on this? No, she no. never dwelt on it. It was just, it happened, and we didn't talk about that. After the war, the Minister for the Army, Frank Ford, recommended an independent inquiry into the disaster that occurred at Rabaul. It might have provided some answers, but it never happened. What followed was decades of silence. The deaths of most witnesses, the grief of survivors who couldn't talk about it, and the shame of a government that left civilians behind put a stop to any national conversation. Rebel was never a secret, it just wasn't talked about, and now it's lost its place in history. After the war, many of the widowed women, including Diana's mother Rhoda, returned to Rebel to a plantation to try to pick up the pieces of their lives. They really struggled, didn't they? they Absolutely, yes. Mrs. Mrs. Costello and Mrs. Adams. And 
How did they struggle? What what did they have to go through? Oh, you to had you had to get your plantation into order after five years or so of neglect during the war. So very run over. And you had to pay labour to do it. But but often too, I mean, they went back and their, their houses had been bombed. Yeah. So they had no accommodation. And when they landed, and they could only. Yeah, Live in grass, yeah, grass huts. Or I mean, you've got. I know you know one lady, Auntie Diana, who was mm. out. Um, oh yes, mm. you might was, want to explain. Who, who was that? Oh, it was Mrs. Uh, Green. Was that you think of? Yes, when she went back, she had to put up a tent and stayed in that. And someone went to see her, and she had malaria, and she was lying in the tent which had sprung a leak, but her bed was four posts stuck in the ground with chicken wire across, and the tent was leaking, so she had an umbrella over her. So she's sitting in on the chicken wire bed with an umbrella. It's a wonder there weren't more deaths of those women, you know, with malaria yes. and things in those circumstances. Yes. What happened to Mrs Green? Well, she did get ill and leave. Today marks the 75th anniversary of the sinking of the Japanese merchant vessel, Montevideo, Nauru. There have been small, quiet ceremonies this year in Melbourne and Brisbane and Rabaul and at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. But first, we present a lament, flowers in the forest, reeds and floral tributes will now be laid at the base of the pool of reflection. The memorials that exist can't convey the full catastrophe of Rabaul. This was Australian territory, and thousands of civilians died here, not just Australians, but New Guineans, Chinese and other nationalities. In that context, maybe the death of one Adelaide schoolboy, who was just 11 when he faced a Japanese court-martial and was shot as a spy, mightn't seem like a big deal. But there's no memorial anywhere for Dickie Manson, Nowhere for him to be remembered. It's like he didn't exist. Dickie's story, and the story of hundreds of other Australian civilians killed when war came to Australian New Guinea, have been pretty much forgotten by everyone but their families. You have the soldiers' names at Bitter Parker, on the Commonwealth War grave there in Rabaul. They're at Ballarat, they're in the Australian War Memorial. So those families have various places where they can go and remember their men, place a poppy beside their name or whatever. But for the civilians who were living in the New Guinea Islands, their men disappeared. And there is nowhere they can go that actually recognises that name as being a person that existed. Perhaps because there's so much uncertainty about just what happened to, to them all. Some of them would have died escaping somewhere on the Montevideo, some were shot in the landing or whatever. Mm. They just disappeared. Mm. I think that's one of the things I find about the civilians in Rabaul is that their names are nowhere. They, um, and to me, that means they don't exist. You've got to put the name there somewhere and recognise that these people actually existed and whether they were they died in Rabaul or on the Montevideo Maru or at Toll or somewhere else, they died as a tragedy of war. Whenever spring breaks through 
The War We Forgot was presented and produced by Ian Townsend. The supervising producer was David Rutledge. Ian's book about this history, called Line of Fire, is published by HarperCollins. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you for another History Listen next week on RN, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.